Hi everyone and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is October 16th, 2015. You are watching episode 29 of Tokyo on Fire. Today's burning issue is Abe diplomacy. The Prime Minister finished up the security legislation two weeks ago. He reshuffled his cabinet. More than 50% of the ministers of state are new members. They are sitting there now. He has not taken the opportunity to enact an extraordinary diet session. So he's using this time to practice diplomacy and visit other foreign countries. Let's talk about it today. Today, as usual, my co-conspirator Michael Chuchek joins me. Michael is the author of the foremost blog on Japanese politics. It is entitled Shisaku. Welcome back, Michael. It's great to be back. We've had a great time and I'm looking forward to this conversation. This is episode 29. We've covered a lot of ground. Last week we talked about the reshuffling of the cabinet, mm -hmm. and a lot has happened even since then. And we, we film this podcast once a week on Fridays. We upload it on Tuesdays. Uh, today we're going to talk about Abe's foreign policy. He didn't take the opportunity to extend the diet session. They just finished 95 days. There's, what, almost two months left in the, the calendar year. He could have had a, an extraordinary diet session. Instead, he's practicing diplomacy. That's the, what everyone is saying. It's not actually been at, absolutely announced yet, but the normal course of affairs is that we have the regular diet session for 150 plus days over the first part of the year, lasting usually around into July, but sometimes ending in June. This year we had an extended session, which lasted all the way into September. And Normally, there'd be what's called the extraordinary diet, right? Right. And the extraordinary diet session, and sometimes even two in a single year, uh, where the issues that were not dealt with during the regular session get cleaned up, and also there's a big buildup for next year's budget process. Mm -hmm. With the extended session that we had this year, uh, the Abe administration is looking at the calendar, and looking at the issues that can be discussed in an extraordinary session, and they've said, we're not going to do it. That's a huge break from precedence, really. Mm -hmm. It's so very different. Uh, in most cases, this, the ex even though it's called extraordinary, it's automatic. It's just something that you do. But they decided to exercise the prerogatives of the prime minister and say, we're not going to we're not going to discuss anything until January at the, at the earliest. Well, politics really is a full-time job. I mean, it occupies the the members of the diet's full full schedule and I mean, you can't do another job while you're doing politics, I think probably in any modern country. But there was a lot of things hanging over from the last diet session that they didn't address. They didn't address the revision of the labor standards law, for example. That, that's huge and that's incredibly important in terms of Japan's international position and its international image that this particular issue that foreign publications pound on all the time right. is not going to be dealt with this year. You have to wonder about the PR segment inside the Conte, inside the prime minister's residence, mm -hmm. whether they're really clear on the concept that they have a selling job to do. Right. Uh, but again, they've looked at the schedule, looked at the amount of time, and more importantly, at the likelihood that either the, the opposition or the students that led the protests throughout the summer would be coming back to the barricades right. and decided, eh. Maybe not a good idea. Let's wait till the winter comes. Sure. That'll sure. make it a little, bit, a little bit cold for them. But you know, at the same time, he reshuffled his cabinet. More than 50% of the ministers are new. And usually when you reshuffle the cabinet, you want to give the, uh, the standing uh, ministers an opportunity to talk about their policies and their philosophies to kind of tee up the bureaucracies and the, the public about what it is on their radar, what is their game plan for their particular portfolio. And ostensibly, what, the, what this means is that the current ministers are not going to be speaking in public or answering questions from anybody. Well, they can speak in public, they can have a speech, but they're not going to be dealing with diet questioning right. until January. Right. And that's really peculiar. And it's not, anytime that any kind of reshuffle has happened in the past, in the last few years at least, there's been at least a, a, a few days that the diet has been opened. Mm -hmm. Sometimes sessions are only last five days, six days. Uh, and then another extraordinary diet session later on in order to introduce 
the new ministers, but we're not even having that. What they have been talking about is some a really peculiar fiddle where the diet stays closed, but the budget committee is open. That's right. And that I don't even know how that works. I don't even know who they call. I mean, the, the emperor is really in charge of the diet sessions, ostensibly, and opens the diet and closes the diets. Does he open the committee? What, mm. does it, what, is, what is it that they have on their minds? It's very peculiar. Right. But, and it's all being framed in this idea that Japan has an international selling job to do, and the prime minister is the one who has to do it, and the ministers are the ones who have to do it. Right. And that this fall is the international approach. Okay. Let's talk about what is called Abe diplomacy. I mean, the prime minister is really the driving force behind diplomacy. Although, of all the ministries, the foreign ministry is always probably number three or number four of, of the top ministries uh, within the hierarchy. And uh, Minister Kishida is, you know, he's been a solid supporter of the prime minister. And he's been, and he's been an extremely busy and active uh, foreign minister. Yeah, but Abe has made it his mark this time around to demonstrate that he gets out of Tokyo, mm -hmm. that he's not nailed to Tokyo. And his main advisor, now his national security advisor, Mr. Yachi, ma made a point of creating this idea that the prime minister goes all around the world <clears throat> and becomes Japan's ambassador. Mm -hmm. Other parts of the government have him as Japan's salesman, and he certainly loves doing that too. He certainly loves landing in various countries and giving aid and at the same time presiding over the signing of contracts. Right. He loves that, and he, he says, I'm salesman number one. And he's done it to an extent that no prime minister in history has ever done. Mr. Prime ministers who have ruled for longer, like Koizumi, have fewer foreign visits fewer trips overseas than Mr. Abe has put together in his two terms together. Mm -hmm. he, he's, he's setting the record every time he gets on a plane to go to somewhere new. He's, he's extending his record, and it's a record that, that is just going to be a legacy that no prime minister will be able to conceivably match for many, many years, maybe even decades. Frequently, uh, leaders use the, the foreign chip or, or international travel as a way to kind of dodge or escape the heat that's going on at home. Or when certain decisions are going to be made, they don't want to be really in front of the cameras. They'll answer them from, you know, the foreign correspondents in wherever they're visiting. But what do you think about this this block of time now that he's using, I mean, he is, and the focus seems to be in Central Asia and, and Mideast, it's not going towards the West. Well, the, certainly he has not been visiting the Mideast the way traditionally prime ministers have been. Japan has always had an energy-dependent, energy-focused diplomatic act you'd, going you'd on. You'd figure that, right? Uh, with 99% with of its energy imported, at least it's it's liquids and solids. You know they they tend to think about places which have oil, gas, and coal, and they they've always really focused on the Mideast. They've of course also argued that as not f until now as not full participants in U.S.-led international coalitions, U.S.-led. Uh, international action. So that it, neutral. It has a neutral position, and it's the friend of the Arabs, mm -hmm. unlike the United States, which is the friend, of, which is the the ally of Israel. Japan has very good relations with Israel, but it has equally good relations with countries that are dead set opposed and and have been the great enemies of Israel. So that's the way Japan has been. With the change that has come, with the change in this in the, Japan's beliefs about well, the law about collective self-defense, collective security. Abe has some explaining to do, and, and that's true. He should go to the various capitals in, in, in the Mideast and explain, this is the new situation. We, and goodness knows what he's going to tell them all. Don't you think he's, he's really in a, the process of redefining, not only for others, but for himself too, this is what Japan stands for, and this is what we are going to do, this is what we're going to stand for. I mean, the diplomacy that he's on now, part of it, I mean, in the past, seems to have been mostly a sales job and, 
and being friendly with those countries that supply you know raw materials and, and natural resources to Japan. Um, he was criticized in earlier administrations for being very, very um, unskillful at uh, at practicing diplomacy, but he sure looks like he's uh, he's gotten better at it. It seems to be that there are, there are two main thrusts. One of them is focused on China, mm -hmm. in that there was an argument put forward within primarily right-wing publications here in Japan, but also within the general diplomatic commentary community, uh, that Japan has been falling behind China in terms of international action and in terms of diplomatic action, mm -hmm. and that Japan has to up its game. And he came into office on a wave of that kind of thought, and he immediately put it into action. He, unlike his DPJ predecessors, who were nailed to Tokyo, who simply couldn't get out. Right. Uh, they had their hands full. They had their hands full, especially Prime Minister Khan after the, uh, the triple disaster of 311. But com compared to Abe, it's day and night. Mm -hmm. He comes in and immediately takes off for the capitals all over the world and drops in at places where prime ministers have not been for decades. Or right. in, the, in case of this last week, he went to Jamaica. And when he went as a part of his trip to New York, he, he made a stop in Jamaica, the first time a Japanese prime minister had ever been to Jamaica. He's touching all kinds of new bases, and that's really clearly focused on matching China's diplomatic mm -hmm. initiatives, especially in Africa, in the Caribbean, just going, it, it sometimes looks as though the uh, representatives of both countries are shadowing each other mm -hmm. and follow, you know, he's been here, so I have to be right. here. She's been there, I have to go there. It, it's, it's a really, really, that's one main focus. The other focus, or if you want to call it a focus, is to introduce Japan as a new force. Mm -hmm. So it's not merely tit for tat with China, but that also there's an independent new line. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you can see that with moving in the terms of the redefinition of security, the idea of a, a cool Japan that has a new image, that it's all these different things are coming in to reintroduce Japan to the world and to reintroduce to the citizens of Japan the concept of Japan as an active player. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, in the past, uh, Japan has been criticized for... Uh, having only one really good uh, trick in their bag, and that was checkbook diplomacy. Uh, they were a wealthy country, um, and usually their practice of diplomacy was just writing checks for um, government funds or um, perhaps uh, economic development projects, that sort of thing, where Japanese companies would partake in those, those projects as well. And, that, that, and it's still going on. You know, when you ever you read something about Abe's traveling to someplace, is there's always another mega package, not right. a small package, a huge aid and development package. Uh, sometimes with tied loans, sometimes with not, sometimes it's untied aid. But anyway, you say, aren't we in a sort of a budget crisis right. situation? Where does this endless checkbook come from? And seemingly the idea that one should cut back on foreign aid, which is normally, which has been the response of a lot of governments around the world, uh, and certainly it's a, uh, an illusion in many demo democratic countries that there's too much money spent on foreigners, let, we need to spend it at home. Mm -hmm. uh, that hasn't come up That's here true. in Japan. It's That's not, right. It's, nobody says that yeah. uh, in response to this incredible generosity mm -hmm. that he's shown. Well, the, the diplomacy has clearly shifted. I mean, the relationship between Japan and the Philippines, Japan and Vietnam, Japan and the Soviet Union. I mean, no, uh, the Russians. I'm sorry, <laughs> we're showing our age. Yes. You, didn't, you didn't see that. Yeah. I take that back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, with the Russians. Um, I mean, to to such an extent. I mean, there are the four islands uh, that the, that Russia um, occupies, and um, there is a little bit of chumminess going on between the prime minister and uh, Mr. Putin. Putin. Yeah, that it's and people it, are asking. Uh, the, the uh, all kinds of, especially from the right wing, are saying occupied territory. Does that concept ever make its way into your speeches? Right. Because when you meet Mr. Putin, you say all kinds of all nice, kinds of nice things, friendly yes. things. Yes. What's going on there? And and they're giving Abe the benefit of the doubt because 
he had did come into office saying that he would did want to resolve the lack of a peace treaty mm -hmm. between Russia and Japan. He wanted to get over that in some way. Now he's also promised the people whose families used to live on those four main those four islands, what are called the Northern Territories, right. visitation that, that that they're going to get the the government's position is all four or nothing. Mm -hmm. So how he's going to balance this out is very, very difficult. It's interesting though, the Russians for their part have said, we'll give we, you two, two and, and let's talk about the other two. Well, that's, that's it. that was the 1956 deal that, that was offered, uh, which the United States nixed and said, don't you dare, don't even think about right. that. Uh, and they do repeat that one and then back off it. It's part of their, their, their ping pong game mm -hmm. that they play. They offer, they, they wave that, but they never wave all four. However, what they're playing is now a really interesting game in that they are asking not to talk about territorial issues in public. Mm -hmm. Now, how they expect anything to not be in public in the modern world, I don't know. But the fact that they want, they're willing to talk about territorial issues in private, whatever that means, right. is I think really interesting. Sure. Yeah, because if they didn't want to talk about it at all, they'd say so. Right. Well, the, the deputy prime minister of Russia did visit one of the islands, and uh, that caused a huge firestorm here in Tokyo. Well, well, all kinds of Russian officials are showing up, mm -hmm. and and Medvedev's trip also was there, and it, it's hard to understand. In terms of territory, Russia doesn't need the islands, uh, and they don't need the money from Japan that they needed about a decade back where you could see some kind of quid pro quo going right. on. Uh, now the, the, the relationship is much more equal, so there's really no sense of Russia having to give up the islands in order to get the Japanese development uh, mm -hmm. aid and also to get the development projects. Now they have a much better client in that regard in terms of China. Right. But uh, you gotta wonder, Militarily, strategically, they're not really important. Mm -hmm. They don't. They don't do anything much. So what's why increase your investment in it? Why they're, they're, they say they're militarizing them? They're, right. they're building them up as, and there are only a few thousand people there. Right. No force is going to try to take them from. Them. There's no Japanese force that can take these islands, and they're not. There's no plan, and there's no training, and there's no nobody's got anything approaching any idea. I mean, right now in Camp Pendleton, a few Japanese Navy, uh, the Maritime Self-Defense Forces and Ground Self-Defense Forces persons are learning for the first time about amphibious warfare. But it's only, you know, it's, it's a few hundred. Sure. That it's, it's, there's no such thing as an invasion force mm -hmm. in Japan of any sort. So. What are the Russians doing? Mm -hmm. Is it just an act? So as the, the locals, when, when the axe comes and they are actually handed over to the Japanese that they, ne they never saw it coming, is that the deal? It, it's tempting to think that way. Yeah, well in, in that context, I guess in this kind of situation, probably status quo is the right um, outcome of that because there's no force bearing on either country to kind of make a decision and making a decision on the, the Northern Territories is, is really huge. I mean, it's in, greatly important for Japan, maybe not so much for the Soviet Union, but capitulating for uh, the Russian uh, premier is probably not something that he's even gonna consider. Well, the Japanese have an ace card. Most people think it, 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 it's a dummy, but it, it's really an ace. And that has to do with the sanctions that were imposed because of the takeover of Crimea and right. Russian actions in, in Ukraine. Japan joined with other countries to sanction mm -hmm. Russia. Now, a lot of people have said, a lot of the old Russia hands here in Japan have thrown up their hands or started crying into the table, everything we have tried to do over these last few decades is destroyed, the relationship is destroyed. Japan never had any leverage in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Now it has something that the Russians want gone, that the Russians are willing to make a deal for. and. I sure. think it's I think it's absolutely perfect, and I think that that has some that's part of the aspect of the continuing relationship. In addition to Abe's actually cultivating it, mm -hmm. uh, 
he doesn't necessarily have to. There may not be any kind of outcome, but he certainly has stepped outside the boundaries set by the Europeans and by um, the USA on what kind of con contacts can be made with Mr. Putin. And, and, and he's just way outside the, the uh, he's a real outlier mm -hmm. uh, in that case. Let's talk about uh, the rest of uh, Southeast Asia, what's going on there, particularly with regard to uh, maybe the Philippines, Vietnam, China building this artificial land, uh, island, mm -hmm. and uh, what's going on between the relations between uh, Japan and China, because that's always in flux too. Well, amazingly, uh, Mr. Abe met here in Tokyo this week with the former foreign minister, Yang Chi, uh, foreign minister Yang. And that was unexpected, because supposedly he's persona non grata still. Mm -hmm. But seemingly, the Chinese are pushing forward very hard on the possibility of there being some kind of summit, maybe a trilateral uh, in later on, maybe in November, maybe something more. Uh, and this visit and this, this get-together, Mr. Yang was here, not specifically here to see the prime minister. Uh, nevertheless, it, a high-level Chinese official meeting with uh, Abe at you know, in Tokyo is, is, is really amazing, uh, considering how poorly the, uh, the relationship has gone. And, right. it, and, it, and it had a real bad turn also very recently in regards the UNESCO uh, submissions. Right. And, and maybe we want to talk about that okay. for a second. Isn't it true, though, that he also kind of ran into an interesting individual in one of the local uh, Tokyo hotels, um, one of the opposition leaders from Taiwan? Yeah, that was all by chance. Yes. Uh, and that he's, of course, a member of the Fukuda faction, uh, or at least now it's called the Hosoda faction, whose basic stance has been pro-Taiwan from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, that this chance meeting should happen in a hotel right. that they both happen to be speaking at uh, chances, but it, but it's important to note that the, uh, the the presidential candidate he met with is from the opposition, not from the not from the ruling Guomindang. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's, it's, not, it's not only it's not only a Taiwanese; it's from the independence-minded right. Taiwanese side. So he's it's and then he met Yang after that. So right. clearly, there are some things that he can get away with, and there are some things that he cannot. But that the, the, the ground has shifted. Mm -hmm. Before, it would, there, there was nothing that he could get away with. Now it seems as though he has some leeway. In, in terms of Abe diplomacy, he's also promised to the Philippines uh, a number of Coast Guard cutters and um, ships of uh, some sort of offensive capability. Yeah, and this is something that's been going on for a long time. There's a lot of training that's done. Uh, both jointly and also led by the Japanese of the Coast Guards of the Philippines right. and of Vietnam now. And of course, the concept there is dealing with China's growing right. naval presence and its growing physical presence in the South China Sea. But Abe's promises and his ability to deliver have, uh, have, have separated. Mm -hmm. A lot of promises were made for giving these two countries in particular retired Coast Guard vessels. Until, of course, suddenly there was a need to have 24-hour constant surveillance and patrols around the Senkaku Islands to deal with the Chinese situation right. there. And we had this crazy situation involving the coral poaching in the Ogasawaras by Chinese private vessels uh -oh. because they're all, the, all the Coast Guard vessels are in the East China Sea guarding the Senkakus the Philippine orders, the, the, the Vietnamese orders, their, their requests are no longer, can no longer right. be filled because the, 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 these ships cannot be taken out of commission at the rate they were being taken out before. The promises are going unfulfilled. And they, there's a real question how what Abe is promising, and this is not just having to do mm -hmm. with the ships, but all these promises that he's making, does Japan have the resources Mm -hmm. to follow up on that. But this is a, an issue that has to do with all of the Abe administration's you know, promises. It, in, in the Western world, diplomacy is pretty much founded on French concepts of um, international exchange and, and developing relations with, with other countries. I mean, many words that 
that we use in, in describing diplomacy are, are French words. Similarly, here in Asia, I mean, the Chinese really have, um, you know, made the mold on what diplomacy is and how you form diplomacy and what your, your long-term plans are. I mean, they... But the language doesn't, the language no, metaphor it, doesn't work there because the terms come from Japanese. Right. They were then used by the Chinese and now we, we, we deal with them. But sure, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, in terms of, we understand a lot of Chinese versions of, 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 of words, you know, guangxi. Right. You, know, you have to have connections. You have to, all these different things do come from the Chinese view. And uh, in the case of the diplomacy that Abe is doing in the region, it's clearly uh, in competition right. with, with China. And sometimes they get ahead of themselves because China has been willing to just bring a blank check to everywhere that it goes, uh, can pretty much convince that they're going to make a huge move into the domestic market. And a lot of countries now have, not only in Southeast Asia, but in, in South Asia and also in, in Africa. Have Africa, to, the big time in Africa. And they have, have got to under, have come to have qualms about signing deals with the Chinese because what, what, what comes are hundreds of traders of China, cheap Chinese textiles right. wiping out the local shoe producers and, and clothes producers and bringing in all their stuff. And that's what the, the trade deal boils down to. Mm -hmm. it, there's a great deal of concern about that. And, and certainly the infrastructure of Southeast Asia is basically right now, it's a race between uh, China and Japan. And we had this big blow up regarding the high-speed rail mm -hmm. in, in Indonesia, where the Japanese side could not believe that the Indonesians eventually settled on a Chinese proposal, which cannot fund itself, is technically less advanced. And they said, how could you do this? Well, they said they, did, they, they, get, they offered a project where the Indonesian government was not uh, does not have to, to, to put any money into the kitty. Mm -hmm. And the, the Japanese said, but, but what if you get nothing? What if, what if these people, this, it's just, you know, vaporware. And the Indonesians sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, okay, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Um, but there was that, an incredibly intense government uh, stimulated and government supported They wanted attempt. that project. They wanted that project mm. so badly. And that collapsed on the government. It hasn't hurt it politically, though, mm. seemingly. Has Japan ever sold a Shinkansen system? Yeah, to Taiwan. Okay. And one can say that surreptitiously and, and indirectly, the entire Chinese high-speed rail system is basically reverse engineering of the Shinkansen. So it's a sort of a complement mm -hmm. uh, to the Japanese technological So the problem. Japanese did sell it, or it was basically uh, reverse no, engineered in the no, Taiwanese Taiwanese, did the Taiwanese is, 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 is the high-speed rail is a Japanese project, okay? Uh, as is a lot of the uh, the internal railways of, of Taiwan. Uh, a lot of them are a lot nicer even than the ones in Tokyo. I was just in Taipei the other day, uh, and uh, their subway system is a lot more comfortable <laughs> than the one we have here, and that was eye-opening. And, mm. and, and, and the high-speed rail system, it's, it's a, a latest generation Shinkansen, basically. Let's talk about the rest of the month. I mean, the, I think the premiere of Papua New Guinea is in town for maybe three or four days. And that being tr well treated, Japan doesn't have much of a relationship with Papua New Guinea, but nevertheless, it wants to have a good one. They've pulled out the red carpet. They certainly have. And they again, that's one of the major changes that has come with National Security Advisor Yachi, mm -hmm. that Japan doesn't get stuck emphasizing the big three relationships, right. the U.S., South Korea, and China. Well, you can see that uh, over the last, what, five or six months, but it is rather recent, isn't it? Well, but it's, it's, it's been from the beginning of the Abe administration. Whatever happens, let's get out of the rut. Mm -hmm. And we saw that Abe got himself in the rut the first time he was prime minister. The first time he was prime minister, everyone was, was expecting him to be the right-wing nationalist destroyer of all relationships in East Asia that right. everybody built him up to be because of his writings and his television appearances. And he switched them all around and, and blew everybody out of the water with making his first foreign trip to China. And then, because he did that, 
everyone was clapping. That's audacious, the, isn't it? Yeah, but they were all clapping for mm -hmm. the rest of his, his term at his incredible turnaround. Right. Yeah, okay. But that still represents getting hung up on China, mm -hmm. even if it's being solicitous to them. So what has been the alternative strategy? Forget it. Forget China. Forget going to Washington. Forget going to Seoul. If it's not easy, don't do it. Right. There are 192 other places to go. Let's make use of them. And they certainly have. What is he doing? He's visiting maybe 22 countries between now and the end of the year. Yeah, the, the, the premier of, of Turkey was here just last week. Yeah, and, and he's going to, in, as a part of this sort of Islamic uh, turn in his diplomacy, he's going to see all of the stands. Mm -hmm. All of them. Right. In, the, in between here now and the end of the year. Wild. I mean, whom? I mean, that's I'd love lot. to be. I'd love to be his travel agent. What's that? That's six countries, and he's going to do that in about six days. He's going, to, he's going to just fly from one capital to another, and cover the area in a way that one normally only associates with either the Russians or the Chinese. Mm -hmm. The United States, of course, does nothing of that sort, and no other leader in the world would ha, has the wherewithal. Mm. But Abe seemingly having touched a lot of bases. I think it's now over 60 countries that he's visited. Uh, now he wants to do these dramatic visits that set the stage. And you have to say, after the six months that were dedicated to the collective security debate. He's coming out the door. He's coming out, he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna go out into right. the world, and he's set, basically. Whatever the, the, the politicians may say, they really don't have 100% control of the economy of the country. Mm -hmm. So making lots of promises about how the economy will go is not the greatest thing that can, you can do. And certainly what you don't, you don't have the levers to, to make things happen, at least not in a fully developed country. In a developing country, you can do, you can pull a lot of levers, you can control the currency, right. you can have control over how the savings of the country are spent. But in a fully developed country, you don't have those levers and you just have to rely on chance and changes in technology, whatever it is to drive uh, any kind of growth. You the know, only lever you've got, and they've used it, is, is trade, is, is freeing up trade. Right. That has been a source of growth for, for advanced industrialized countries for the past 40 years. And it's often the largest or only source of growth. So the Abe administration with its TPP, mm -hmm. they're on track with that. But then, okay, so you can't control the economy. What can you control? Well, you can control the image of the country. Right. And that's what he's doing. Well, I think one of the, the, the strengths of any good leader is that he can inspire and he can compel the people, the citizens of the, the country to, to believe, to, to aspire, to, to, believe that tomorrow will be better than today and it's only because you know we, we can act together and we can do this together but actually to be able to do it is uh, another thing altogether and in this country it is a parliamentary democracy that means that the prime minister really is not as powerful as for example the president of the united states or any president of a country and even more so formally formally but you gotta you have to say that abe is in a really peculiar position he, as compared to other OECD country leaders. Right. You've got to say, with his massive majorities inside the House of Representatives and a major majority inside the House of Counselors, his control over how the appointments are made in the bureaucracy, which his predecessors did not right. have, and now his control over the party, which we discussed. Mm -hmm. There is not another elected leader in the OECD or any other country that wouldn't love to be in the position sure. he's in. Sure. Okay, let's be, it's a parliamentary system, sure. Prime Minister, sure. He could be tossed out next day, but he won't be. Right, well that's one of the great things about, I hope, about this podcast is that we can take a look at these things in context and explore them and describe them and look at them from a, from a historical perspective. And the, the point that I wanted to make was that uh, the Prime Minister really has a, a, a very um, warm feeling for for you know the dictator types, you know, and it's it's a little bit funny, but this is 
this is Japan, you know, 2.0. I mean, it is not like we were speaking uh, just last week in our podcast that the predictions that we're allowed to make are founded on what we think of how the system works here, and that system is different now, and it's changing, and it's and it's evolving. Well, certainly Japan always had a sweet spot for Mideast emirs and kings mm-hmm. and such things that they could look the other way on all kinds of things. But they, Japan has been also a team player in terms of uh, what is known as the Western Alliance. And certainly we're going to see Japan being one of the first to make a reversal on that in terms of approaching Iran. Mm-hmm. Now, the last time a prime minister in, was in Iran was a long time ago. Uh, I think it was Takeo Fukuda who visited, um, maybe in 79? 79, maybe 78, because 79 was the revolution. Okay. So, but still, it's been a long time. A long time. I, I, didn't, I didn't actually look at the date, uh, but it, it's, it's been at least since the 70s. Abe's going to Iran this fall, supposedly. That's huge. And it, it, it's, now, Japan has always been a good friend of Iran, has not been always mm-hmm. on the forefront of things such as sanctions, but has always played along. Now, now that the uh, United States and Iran have worked out some kind of deal, Abe's first in line right. to get in through, into, the, into the airport. Sanctions are now down. Yeah, and he's going to just jump in immediately mm-hmm. because they, when that hurdle disappears, he, he's, re, he's immediately acting. He's not checking first. He's not feeling the, for the stones in the water right. or checking what, what Washington feels. It doesn't matter. Japan's interests in Iran require it. Boom, I'm going to be there. Now, that's, that's one of the aspects that, uh, that plays into this warmth with Erdogan of Turkey or with Putin. And his close advisors, Abe's close advisors, have said, Let's face it, these are the guys he gets along with best. Mm-hmm. He's a really, he really can understand them and they understand him. Uh, and they've said this to, to, to reporters. It's not like it's some secret code that was decoded or some WikiLeaks cable. Right. No, this is, this, is, this is speaking to reporters saying, you know, this is the way the world is. Mm. And Abe has, let's say it, been quite prescient in looking at the, the problems, the image problems of Putin, of Erdogan, as compared to the way they're seen in, uh, uh, in Western Europe or in uh, the United States, in the North America. And he said, yes, but we're still going to deal with these people. Right. And we're still going to have incredibly close relations. And the Turkish-Japan relationship is, is as close as, in, and, and as respectful as any relationship between two countries can be. Uh, and so that while the United States and the countries of the EU have a problem with, with Erdogan's authoritarian rule, Japan, not at all. Well, they'll hold the G7 summit there uh, just before uh, the end yeah, of the year, right? Well, they'll have the G20, right? Is it the G20? Yeah, the G20 will be in, was supposed to be in Turkey. And Turkey is a major economic power, and it's also the most important uh, Muslim country, mm-hmm. and, and it's also geostrategically in a position where it will be very important. They take also the, the vast majority of the Syrian refugees. They're, they're, and they're, the, they're, the Japanese have, have contributed a huge amount of money. And that, to, that, to that there's a, a real symbiosis right. there between the, the ability of the Turkish government to handle things physically and the ability of the Japanese government to, to fund it. Mm-hmm. No question there. There's, and there are lots of ways that the two countries can interact in a way that gives Japan's limited means of acting militarily an extension. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly, whenever anything had to do with ISIS and Japanese held by ISIS and eventually killed by ISIS, Turkey was involved. Right. And so that there's always going, going to be a strong relationship. Abe simply has built on top of that. Right. Well, it's, I, I think it's probably a little bit unexpected for this prime minister to be as emboldened as he seems to be. And this is probably, a, you know, it's a precursor. He will spend most of his time throughout the rest of this year on diplomacy and international relations and move into the next year. I mean, it's easy to get 
high points on diplomacy because it really uh, there are no very few downfalls, right? I mean, well, it's it's like the old statistic of of uh, Woody Allen: eighty percent of it is just, just showing, showing up. up, right? And if you if the Japanese version of Air Force One, the large jet that they have, arrives at a, the capital of a country that's never seen a Japanese prime minister before, it's news, right? And it raises Japan's profile. Right. It may not do anything for Abe at home, but Abe has no has nothing to worry about at home. Well, I don't know. I guess the only thing that could go wrong is if there's a huge natural natural disaster mm -hmm. at home while he's on one of his foreign trips, right? Or in the middle of a, a multi stage trip. That, of course, would be that's that's one of those wild cards that comes out. Right. But otherwise, there's really no downside. Sure. So I think he's going to come off of kind of a high note, end the year and start the diet session in January, maybe early February. And we've got the, the foreign dip diplomatic part covered now. Now let's focus on the economy, let's focus on the budget. And now here comes the upper house election. It wouldn't be a smart, dumb plan, would it? Right, it, no, wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't look, and, and you're right, it, it looks good mm -hmm. in terms of scheduling, in terms of thematic, Work and, and and let's face it. This is again a very theatrical right. administration. They're very concerned about how things are portrayed, and they do a lot of advance work. A lot of it falls flat. Mm -hmm. uh, they, for example, they've been sending out surreptitiously and, and indirectly to all the foreign correspondents and all these scholars overseas uh, a lot of revisionist texts that have been translated into English saying, this is the true story about Japan, this sure. is the true story about the things that Korea says about us. And it's not been the government. They've, they've worked it through uh, members of the LDP. And I, I've been receiving a lot of um, Facebook comments, emails, Twitter, all about tweets about, about what is this stuff mm -hmm. that I, that's arriving in my bed? Who, who gave, how, how, what? Yes, it's all a part of this push to set the stage, to to frame whatever Abe's going to do in a new way. And okay, so most of the time it, it's a clunker, mm -hmm. but then every once in a while right. you're going to get a hit. You're going to get a hit. Let's talk a little bit about the clunkers before we wrap up this this part about Abe diplomacy. TPP looks like it's on track, but in Japan, yeah. But, you know, the farmers are not going to be liking that. He's apparently opened up a TPP office now. Mm -hmm. We've got a couple of people who were captured. No, you got to say, before we Sorry. get to that, we really do have to say that if you want to get the negative view of Japan's approach to TPP, you need to read uh, Aurelia George Mulgan, the, the Australian academics, review in the East Asian Forum of the exact measures, the countermeasures that the Abe administration has already set up that basically negates okay. any kind of reform of agriculture of any kind. So that, again, it's, a, it's theater for foreign audiences mm -hmm. that TPP may have actually zero effect on the actual farmers of Japan. Right, because, I mean, we've, we've been through this before. We know the scenario. We will protect you. We will, you know, we will buy your, your produce or we'll train you or we'll give you stipends so that you can ease out of whatever it is, raising chickens, and now you'll be... And the regulations uh, will yes. be changed, whereas before a mixture had to be 40% mm -hmm. foreign pork with 60% domestic. It'll now be 50-50, but right. you'll still get your 50. Right. You say... You can't do this. This right. isn't this. Of course, they can. It's a non-tariff barrier. They can do whatever they right. want. Well, it is important that they begin this this meshing because that is what TPP is all about to create a, a somewhat of a free trade zone, have things more unitized in terms of uh, quality and and prices. Yeah, and you were about to bring up the two spies, people who were uh, two Japanese. That um, and this is not just now. I mean, there, actually, there's been probably four or five other people who have been identified as spies and held, but uh, right now we've got two that uh, are a little bit of a worry. The, uh, the relationship with China is always a difficulty. The idea that Chinese security forces single out people on a, in a political way because they can then be used as political pawns. Right. Every country that has dealings with China has to deal with this issue. So I don't think there's really a lot that makes Japan different. The only thing that's different is that we already have an, a really enervated anti-Chinese mood 
sure. in this country. Sure. Well, everybody practices diplomacy in different ways, and some of them are. One of the ways is just to capture people and say you're a spy, and now uh, maybe the negotiation between our countries takes a little bit different of a turn. Let's talk about UNESCO. UNESCO. Japan presented two sets of documents to be put into the international record of documents and that are significant for world culture. And both of Japan's submissions, one, the, uh, the documents for the te temple called Toji in Kyoto, uh, approximately a thousand years and about 25,000 original, do original documents, uh, some of them extremely old, uh, detailing the activities of this very great temple. Well, part of the original plan of the building of the capital of Heian in 794. It was one of the, the two main temples. The other one, Saiji, is gone. It's been gone for hundreds of years. But Toji and its records were kept intact and have been, that was submitted and that was an automatic. Then there was a little bit of a questionable one, which was the documents of the Maizura port uh, detailing the story of the half a million Japanese who were held inside the gulags of the Soviet Union. There, there we get the Soviet Union in. Mm -hmm. And of them, f over 55,000 died. This is after World War II. This is based on a war that is still go ongoing. That's why we need the peace treaty. But that started on August the 9th and lasted only a few weeks. Nevertheless, hundreds of thousands of POWs, about 10% of whom died in, in these camps, the documents that had to do with that. Right. And one could say that it doesn't paint Russia in a very, very flattering light. Those were both accepted. Mm -hmm. But from the Chinese submission was... Nanking. Yes. And documents having to do with the massacre in 1937. Authentic documentation, some provided uh, by uh, Japanese uh, soldiers contemporaneous with what was going on at the time. And also documents that were used in the what's now called the Tokyo Trials of the right. leaders of, of the uh, Japanese government, some of whom were executed, many of whom were given life sentences and then later released by the Japanese government when after the end of occupation, the occupation. Anyway, the Nanking documents were also accepted. And this... This is a firestorm right now, isn't it? It's a it? firestorm right now, and yes. it, it, but you, you have, again, it's theater. Mm -hmm. it, they are talking seriously, well, unseriously, about defunding UNESCO. Right. We're going to withhold our, what is it? Our about, contribution. About 10% of the entire budget but, of, of, of UNESCO. Now, the United States played this game as well. It defunded UNESCO when it felt that the organization was supporting too many anti-American projects and causes. Somewhat effectively. And eventually the United States came back, right. back in. Uh, Japan, because of this one submission, is, is making a similar threat. Mm -hmm. Now, Japan perhaps should make more of these threats. It has supported the, the Bretton Woods institutions and the United Nations excessively as if you compare it to what it gets out of them. Right. Japan has been paying over 10% of the United Nations budget. We want to be part of the Western, we want to be considered, we want to and be... And what have they got out of it? Yes. No permanent seat in the Security Council. Japan and Germany are still listed as enemies in right. the UN Charter. Maybe it's time for Japan to start throwing its weight around. And here in this UNESCO situation, maybe Rather than taking on the entire UN, they're just taking on a piece of it and making a noise. So it may not have really anything to do with the, the Nanking situation at all, just that it provides an excuse for Japan to, to play hardball. And, you know, Abe, they play a multi-level a multi game. It's not all, we're all going to be nice. It's not, we're all going to be tough. It's all kinds of different feelers in all kinds of different directions. So what do you think? I mean, what's, what's your feel here? Is, is the diplomacy that is being practiced now by the current prime minister substantially different from diplomacy as we know it to have been played by current administrations? I would say it's the difference between a, a tree in full leaf and a tree in the autumn with its leaves off. Until mm -hmm. now, Japan has been basically a barren tree. Some, some th sticks and, and, and stems going this way and that, right. but not a full-blown 
program. You have to give the Abe administration credit and also even the right wing of Japan for pushing him into conceiving of diplomacy as something that Japan has to engage in in a much, much more comprehensive and much more variegated right. way. It's, it's, it's been, as you said, it's been really checkbook diplomacy, a lot of aid in kind, uh, the uh, Yamaha people and the Suzuki right. piano people, all these, all these different people are very right happy. Right in tow. Because yes. if one, of the, one of my favorite line items inside the MOFAS budget every year was musical instruments to foreign countries. You know, 15 tubas to, to Namibia. Uh -huh. And you say, whoever thought of these things? Right. And they, they, obviously it was to support Japanese mu musical manufacturers, but also they had, this was actually, they thought that this was somehow buying Japan mm -hmm. real influence in these countries. I don't know. I have to look at the budget. It's been a while since I've looked at it, but I don't think it has those things anymore. It's much more substantial, right. much more controlled by the Conte rather than the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We were talking about the Prime Minister visiting Jamaica, and one of the ways to practice diplomacy is to somehow create an opportunity for other people to visit your country for, you know, a, a good period of time. And the number of jets, Japanese English teachers uh, under a jet program right. uh, has risen to about 45. I mean, it's, it's almost twice what it has been in the past. So bringing in, you know, students from other countries to come in Japan and have an experience here for a two-year term, that's meaningful. Well, they're, they're doing all kinds of things in that regard. And uh, yet, again, you have to give them credit for fleshing out Japan's diplomatic initiatives. Mm -hmm. Would this have happened if it were not for the China challenge? Of course not. Right. This is clearly in response to China's full-fledged, full-throated international efforts. But at the end of the day, this is something that's good. It gets Japan out of its ruts. And it, Japan for a long time was in its ruts. It right. was overly focused and overly sensitive to what's going on in Washington, mm -hmm. you know, obsessively so. You have none of that obsession right. of staring at Washington, D.C. that we used to have. Right. And there was not this, you know, Seoul doesn't want to, to deal with us? Fine, we'll move somewhere else. There's plenty of other places to go. That kind of ability to just shrug off difficulties and not get obsessed about, right. about certain relationships, that's a major development. And again, you have to give the current administration and its stability that, that, that the stability that it has brought in terms of Japan having a single leader for a continuous, a long stretch of time, that we're, it, seeing, we're seeing a completely it, different diplomatic approach. Well, it creates opportunities that probably are not available. They don't even reach fruition when you're changing these administrations all the time. Listen, before I ask you about predictions, I'd like to, to just um, check with you. And what do you think, this, this Prime Minister, I mean, who would have thought that Prime Minister Abe would be this, not aggressive, but this uh, intuitive about practicing uh, diplomacy as aggressively as it seems he's practicing it now. I, I he, didn't, uh, let's be fair, I ha didn't pay attention to him until he won unexpectedly in the LDP election in 2012. He was basically yesterday's man. Right. So what he was doing while he was wandering through the wilderness, I mean, the reports I would get from other members of the Diet, from other parties that met him, was that he was sort of a half zombie figure, just mm -hmm. there. Right. Uh, what he was, that he was really preparing, that he is thinking about how he was going to do things differently, basically was off everyone's radar until suddenly his reappearance, his, his taking on, saying, I am going to run for the LDP presidency, and then seizing that opportunity and taking it away from Ishiba Shigeru, who right. seemed to be a lock, and just, it's mine. And that he had a plan, very different from the case of the, of the uh, three arrows, right. in where there, there were two arrows that were formed, and then a third arrow, which was to be decided later. That this, there was a rollout of diplomatic initiatives and diplomatic activity, and that it has worked. Mm -hmm. For, there's, there's really, what, what can you say are his diplomatic failures? It was very difficult to identify them. Right. Uh, there's just, they're just not there. I mean, it, the closest thing they have to a failure is the inability to get 
the contract in Indonesia for the high-speed rail. But that was, it was an unfair contest. Mm -hmm. Come on. Really uh, unexpected. Just yes. No one saw it coming. Right. Well, one of the other features of the Abe administration is that it really is tight-knit, and it seems like he's got everybody pretty much under control. And one of the beauties of closing the diet and not having an extended diet, and you have 10 new ministers, and they're not being you know, challenged in, inside the diet, it kind of gives him a, a little bit of a, a quiet zone. And he can, and he can deploy them right. all over the world. They're, they're able to travel as well and able to make themselves known to the world so that, again, when, as you say, when you, he opens the diet in mm -hmm. January of next year, he'll have, he, he'll have this deck of cards and he'll say, look, here's what I got. Everybody's com comfortable with the chairs that they're sitting Everybody, in. Everybody's yeah. here. What, you, what do you got? Yeah. Give and me your best shot. And the, dip, and the opposition will say, um, let's talk about the security legislation. Yes. And he'll say, no, that, no, no that's, that's old that's, story. That's done. Yes. It's law now. Yes. Move on. And it's going, to be, it's going to be interesting to see what their plan is to deal with this super empowered and really activated Prime Minister. You know, we try and engage people who are watching Tokyo on Fire by providing us comments and criticisms and telling us what they like about what it is that we're doing. And you made a prediction last time that really uh, resonated with a lot of people, and that was your prediction that there might be a double election uh, when there is the election for uh, the upper house in the summer of next year. Yeah, well, the, the, that's only based on this concept that I have, that Abe wants it all. Mm -hmm. And the way you get it all is put it all on the line and let the other guy's disorganization right. deliver it let, to you. Let them run through all of their funds. They don't have as much as we do. So let them run through it and let's, uh, and, and, let's and, capture the, the, the flag. And that's, that's, that, that, you got to admit that's tempting. Yes, it is. And if, if people have, that's resonated with people, great. Yes. But w there is one thing that everybody has always said to us. You know you got to change. Yes, right. And that is that we talk for an hour. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, naval gazers like you and I, we enjoy this sort of thing. And, and we came up with this idea of having a podcast because we thought other people who are interested in Japanese political issues might be interested in something more than just reading a newspaper article or somebody else regurgitating some flat, rather generic explanation for something that's, that's more complex. And we found that talking to each other, we've actually convinced each other of other of, of, of new points that we hadn't actually thought no, of when we sat down. Here. That's right. I, I've learned a lot. We do this um, just for the uh, watching audience. Uh, we do this without scripts. I mean, we, we pick a topic and we run with it and we try and exhaust ourselves. Mm -hmm. And right? the thing is, a lot of people said, can you have a 10-minute version? Right. Can you have a shorter version? I don't have time for an hour. We have a great yeah. time talking. We learn a lot. We do. We try. We explore issues. But some people don't have the time. That's right. Well, there are, there are a couple of things that um, people have suggested to us. One is, why don't you make a synopsis, or why don't you have like when you finish it, why don't you have another ten minute just to you know talk about what it is you're going to talk about, or um, you know I'm too busy at work. Why don't you have you know closed caption? But there is already closed caption on YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's um, automatically embedded there. So if you don't want to listen to a to our voices, you can see the, the words going by, and, and that's good. But um, yes, uh, the, the most frequent and um, consistent criticism that we get is, you guys talk for too long. It's good stuff. I really enjoy it. It's, it's deep, but I don't have that much time. So we've come up with a, a change of format, haven't and we? And why don't you explain it? Okay. Because, because it's, it's, it's brand new. It is, it is brand new. So we're going to go off of the um, one-hour concept of talking an issue to death. And these, I mean, when we talk about these issues, we do it in a way that it has good shelf life so that perhaps in six months or eight months, somebody can go back and see our issue on TPP and understand what the dynamics were at that point and maybe make some educated guesses about what's happening now with it. Um, now what we're going to do is we're going to compress the time. We're going to have maybe 25 minutes talking about specific issues, not just one issue, but specific issues. Don't that, tell me, tell them. No, I'm sorry. We're going to talk about specific <laughs> issues that hit our radar that are of importance politically, economically, socially, so that you, the viewer, can 
better understand what it is that's happening here. You can perhaps redefine what your strategy is with regard to Japan, whether you live here or not. Or when you're advising your clients about what they're doing in Japan, maybe you have a little bit better of a sense of what's going on because you heard it here on Tokyo on Fire. That's right. And I'm looking forward to this new format. It's going to be a little bit faster. Yes. And we're going to have to think a little bit more quickly. And that uh, at our advanced age, that might be a little bit difficult, but we'll try our best. And uh, we, are, of course, invite a lot of the viewers like you to send us your comments and to send us your ideas about how we can make this new podcast work. Right. So just to wrap this thing up, thank you very much, Michael. Just to wrap this thing up, today's episode number 29, our burning issue was Abe Diplomacy. And as you can tell from the dialogue that Michael and I are having now, when you provide comments to us, we read them, we listen to them, we don't always respond to them, but they have an impact on us. And you are our viewers, you are our audience, and we really want to appeal to you. We want to provide you know, the information and the insight that we glean from living here and doing this sort of thing every day. And we understand its value, we understand it's very specific and special, but we understand that it has you know, importance beyond what it is that we do for a living. So thank you very much for joining us. Please continue to provide your comments and recommendations to us. You can do that in several ways, either by adding comments directly to the YouTube dialog box. You can send comments to us at comments at tokyoonfire.com via email, or we're also available on Twitter, hashtag tokyoonfire. Finally, you can download this podcast on iTunes. Thank you very much for watching. Please join us next week for episode 30. Our new format will start at episode 31 in two weeks. Please continue to tell your friends about our podcast. My name is Timothy Langley. See you next week.